With its desolate eyes, miles from the sunrise, the darkness inviting to me, the insomnia's lullaby. A siren is playing its song in the distance, the melody rattles. All right, so that's Paul Simon getting you warmed up and in the mood for a conversation about sleep and lack of sleep, as he implies. We're losing sleep as a as a human race, and certainly as an American society, we are losing sleep. Uh, short sleep duration is bad in lots of ways that you will hear. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you could pick almost sort of any human psychological or physical ailment. Uh, you could just plug that into an equation saying that short sleep uh, is bad for you. And we are sleeping less. One study that was done of American adults, working American adults from 2010 to 2018, just found that the number of people getting less than seven hours of sleep was increasing uh, with the years uh, in working Americans significantly from 2010 to 2018, from 30.9 percent in 2010. Uh, people getting less than seven hours of sleep to 35.6 in 2018. So we're not doing well, uh, but we're going to try to help you do well now. Obviously, uh, obviously, right now you're having a hard time sleeping anyway because you're worried about a whole bunch of things that you've never had to worry about before. I also have to quickly tell you that this is the first Colin McEnroe show episode that we've done under the new regime, under the new circumstances, uh, and that is that I am in my house right now. Uh, and uh, various courageous uh, and very adept people, uh, starting with Kat Pastor and Katie Tularski uh, and Joe Koss and Gina Matruda, all kinds of people are making sure that this can go out over the airwaves. But, you know, there might be hiccups and glitches, and if so, don't panic. We'll get through them. Um, and Betsy Kaplan, obviously, is producing this show. I barely need to tell you that. And our guest today, well, a familiar voice, Maria Konnikova, journalist, professional poker player, probably not a conducive thing to sleep, uh, and the author of two books, including The Confidence Game and Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. Her new book, The Biggest Bluff, will be published in June 2020. Uh, also joining us, Dr. Dan McNally is with the Sleep Orders Center at UConn Health. So, um, so uh, first of all, maybe we should begin with you, uh, Dr. Dan McNally. Uh, I, in my fumbling way, tried to sketch out what sounds to me like kind of an invisible public health crisis. I mean, we have a public health crisis that is top of mind right now. But to what degree is sleep disorder, sleep deprivation, inadequate sleep, whatever we, we want to call it, to what degree would you call that a real public health problem, if not crisis? Well, it's pervasive across our whole society. We really let sleep go to the bottom of the list of things we need to do. And people just don't value it very much. I'll, I'll get around to some sleep if I have nothing else I have to do. They don't realize that there's implications to it. Um, and you can go through a, a list like you started to. Um, it, it affects how we function in the daytime. Little things, uh, perception of things, uh, vigilance. Uh, the ability to keep track of information, memory, all these things are tied up in how well we sleep. And when we don't sleep well, we don't function as well. I'm always fond of picking an example that has to do with reaction time. You can take somebody who hasn't had sufficient sleep, and they're not asleep. They haven't fallen asleep. But just measure their reaction time. The very act of being sleepy makes your reaction time fall. 
and that kind of thing sets us up for automobile accidents, other uh, other problems like that. Um, it affects how we feel in terms of mood, how we feel in terms of energy. Um, so it really does cross uh, into all age groups and throughout our society that we just don't value it. So, Maria, I'm sure you have a lot uh, to say about that, too, but we should maybe start with the fact that if we are losing sleep, it seems like we might be losing it uh, from uh, the nighttime side more than from the morning side. We're not turning into Benjamin Franklin types and getting up early and getting the worm and all that stuff. Well, I think it's actually both because we have... On the one hand, we are going to bed later and we're exposing ourselves to lots of blue light before we fall asleep. Um, and there are lots of studies that show that blue light is actually very bad for you and in terms of re uh, restarting your circadian clock. So basically, melatonin, um, which is what you need to fall asleep, doesn't get released at the right time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it basically creates this sense of jet lag and we get blue light from our computer screens, from our phones, from our TVs. I mean, it's all around us and people do lots of things. You know, they say, oh, you know, I'm going to watch a movie. I'm going to do this before bed. I'm going to check my phone. I'm going to check the Twitter feed, um, which is these days especially bad. Um, but um, actually the morning is also being affected, especially for younger people, because school start times have actually been pushed very early. And so for the population that actually needs the most sleep, which are children and teenagers, so teenagers actually need more than nine hours of sleep. Um, and children can need up to 12 hours of sleep, depending on the age. And, you know, now you have schools that start at 730am at 8am. And so you're basically waking kids up when their bodies are saying, stay dead asleep. Um, so I think it's on both ends. Right. So and I want to uh, get more deeply into that whole thing about kids in school uh, a little bit later here. But I also want to report my own insane feedback loop of blue light, which is that I wear a Fitbit. One of the things the Fitbit does is uh, attempt a crude measurement of how much you sleep. I'm very res responsive to and It grades you. It'll give you like a 79 or an 83 for how much you sleep. And I'm very easily manipulated by that kind of positive or negative reinforcement. So sometimes before I go to sleep, I study my Fitbit to see how much I slept the previous night, which is probably interfering in just the way that you suggest with my oncoming attempt to go to sleep. But um, uh, Dan McNally, um, Maria used a term which we all hear a lot, and that's circadian rhythm or circadian sleep. I'm not quite sure that I do understand what that means. Help us understand that one. Well, it's, it's a complement to sleep. Your circadian rhythm is your biologic rhythm that runs at about 24 hours. And the word about is really a key in there. In, it's not always exactly 24 hours. Uh, and part of this is tied up in the fact that in our world now, we have light, especially in the evening hours, that we didn't have in the past. And we are still wired the way we were in the past. So the result is that our internal clocks that regulate things to do with hormone, growth hormone, cortisol, uh, our metabolism, that also regulate our alertness um, are shifted a little bit. One way to think about how we sleep is to think about the fact that the need for sleep 
is what gets us to sleep in the first half of the night. There's a change in the functioning of the brain that goes about with use of energy, molecules that have to be cleared out from the brain, housekeeping that has to occur. And that need for sleep builds through the day and it peaks at the um, time you're going to go to bed. Um, however, if you think about it, it would be, um, if most of us woke up halfway through the night, we don't feel like we're halfway restored. We feel really tired. And in fact, if I wake you up right before you're going to get up anyway, sometimes you're very tired. Well, what's going on there? The first half of the night we sleep because of this pressure to sleep, this chemical biologic need to clear these molecules out. The second half of the night, we sleep because our circadian rhythm is telling us that's the time we should be sleeping. And it keeps us asleep. Now, it's a good thing it does because when it works well, it keeps us alert through the whole day until the next night when it's time to sleep. In the modern world, where there's a lot of light in the evening hours, light in the evening hours gets into our brain, activates some receptors in our eyes, sends signals to the part of the brain that controls the circadian rhythm and pushes it to go to bed later and get up later. So most people you run into, if you say to them, are you more sleepy when you're going to bed or when you're getting up in the morning? A lot of people are going to say to you, well, I go to bed because I have to. It's time. I'm supposed to go to bed. If you say to them, how do you feel when you wake up? I'm still tired. Uh, a certain amount of that is because of that shift in the circadian rhythm to that later time. So, um, Maria, we're, we're going to go back to Dr. McNally in just a second about some of the actual physiological reasons you might not be sleeping. But a lot of it is just being a typical 21st century schizoid person, right? I mean, a lot of the stuff that we do, we've talked about light, we've talked about blue light, but it's like a lot of our eating, drinking, smoking, all the stuff that we do is a behavioral behavioral map on how not to sleep well, it seems, correct? Absolutely. Um, and this is what's called sleep hygiene. So, um, sleep hygiene is basically kind of just healthy practices around going to bed, which means um, no nicotine, no caffeine, no alcohol right before bed, um, and also obviously no blue light, which we talked about before. And all of these things are things that people actually disregard all the time, um, especially alcohol. Um, people often even use it as a sleeping aid because they think it helps them fall asleep, which might be true, but it's actually the the wrong kind of sleep because your REM sleep is affected and you're not actually getting restful sleep and then you're going to wake up and you're not going to be able to get back to sleep once you do wake up. So there are lots of issues there. We're also not really um, stabilizing our schedules. So that's another reason, that's another element of sleep hygiene. So actually for an ideal sleep-wake cycle, you really want to be going to bed around the same time every single day and waking up around the same time every single day. Um, and we don't do that. You know, we will pull an all-nighter here 
Or, you know, we'll decide, oh, let me, you know, stay up for an extra hour now. Let me do this. Let me do that. So we make those choices all the time. And that comes at the quality of our sleep, not just that night, but the night after that and the night after that, because we're disrupting the rhythms that our bodies need to schedule when you need to go to sleep. And I think the final element of that is um, also eating. So ideally, um, you don't want to eat right before bed. You also don't want to go to bed when you're starving. Um, so having your food in a certain window and eating at predictable times um, is incredibly useful. But how many of us snack before bed? How many of us, you know, just disregard that and go to a 10 p.m. dinner? Um, I think a lot of us might do that and not realize that we're really affecting our ability to actually fall asleep when we decide, okay, now it's time to go to bed. Right. And one of the things that you're subtly implying is that Netflix is killing us because, you know, you're watching Netflix and you and even if you want to disengage, it's it starts another episode unbidden. Um, oh, listen, I, I, I don't even want to get into that's that's another hour with you, Colin, to try to tell you how many shows I've watched another episode of just because it started and I couldn't bring myself to stop. I think right. that's a problem that all of us have. I believe they will be put on trial eventually for this, those Netflix people uh, and have to answer for their uh, for their malfeasance. So, you know, I said this at the beginning, uh, Dr. Dan McNally, uh, that we could plug all kinds of things into the equation. Lack of sleep equals bad something, and it's anxiety, it's loneliness, it's a lot of psychological disorders. And they're just, I mean, longevity, right? From what I can tell just reading the research, uh, Dan, it seems like you don't sleep well, your chances of living to a ripe old age decline. Well, I think that's definitely true from the data. You have to be a little careful. Uh, some of it might be cause, some of it might be effect. Mm-hmm. Um, not sleeping well does change hormones in your body that change how your body handles inflammatory reactions to things, how it handles blood pressure. So that's going to set you up to be at risk. But some of the studies that you'll read, when you survey a lot of people and you ask them, uh, how long do you sleep? And again, every so often you'll see this publication about a study, people who sleep less than X hours are more likely to die. People who sleep more than so many hours are likely to die. Remember, mixed in that are a number of people who had diseases, regular diseases, diabetes, whatever, that set them up to have that mortality. And the poor sleep is a consequence of the underlying disease. So you do have to be a little careful in the analysis of it. Um, actually, Maria, I think you and I may have read some of the same research about uh, the connection between sleep disturbance and Alzheimer's disease. Yes, absolutely. Um, so that's that's one of the things that people have been researching for a while now. Um, in fact, one of the earliest signs of not just Alzheimer's, but dementia um, more broadly is sleep disturbance. And sometimes if you catch that, it's a predictor that you know 10 years down the line, 12 years down the line, you're going to develop dementia. And once again, I think what Dan said is incredibly important. Um, it's very difficult to know what the cause and what the effect is in the, in those cases. You know, are the is the fact that the plaques have started to build up disturbing your sleep, or is the fact that you can't sleep causing this buildup, which will then cause cognitive decline and dementia? Um, unfortunately, we can't test that until someone is dead. So the only way that you can see what the buildup is and what's going on is after someone has already died when you actually autopsy the brain. And so, 
you know, obviously you're not going to say, you know what, you're, uh, you're sleeping less well, let's, uh, let's do a quick brain autopsy and figure out if you have plaques already. So, so we don't actually have a way of testing that. And I think that there are plausible theories both ways. There's um, research that has been done over the last 10 years about something called the glymphatic system, um, which is basically the fact that while we sleep, our brain cleans out the mess, the misfolded proteins, all of the kind of trash that has accumulated during the day. If you don't sleep, um, that can't happen. And a lot of it just sticks. Um, And so perhaps what we're seeing is that sleep disturbance is causing an inability to clean some of that, which will cause cognitive decline and eventually Alzheimer's dementia down the line. But again, um, I think we do need to be really careful. Um, No one is quite sure what comes first. Right. I read the same thing that there's almost these, 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 you know, a cleaning crew in the night kitchen of your brain that comes in and, and clears out all these metabolic waste products uh, and with with fluid inflow to the brain, which does seem to appear during sleep. So, Dan McNally, you know, um, you may want to comment on what we just talked about, uh, but I'd also you were sort of getting at this before. But one of the things that I still don't quite understand. In fact, I I grew up hearing a lot about REM sleep, and and now every study I read is about NREM sleep. (laughs) And and the NREM sleep seems to be even more important, but maybe you can help us understand that better. Well, non-REM sleep, um, you can think of it, especially when it's in its deeper stages, uh, is part of what the brain does to recover from wakefulness the day before. Um, if you look at brain waves, um, they go from being, uh, when you're awake, little low-voltage squiggles, nothing very impressive. And as you fall asleep, they gain voltage and they slow down in frequency. And in fact, in kids, it's actually rather dramatic. They have a lot of this low-wave sleep, high-voltage, low-frequency. Uh, this perplexed the people who first started studying the brain in sleep. They expected to see high voltage when you were awake and low voltage when you were asleep. They saw the opposite, and it actually turned them off from studying it. But now we know that what happens during that non-REM sleep is part of this restoring the chemistry of the brain. Um, One of the things I always like to think of, it turns out there's a substance called adenosine that's released when you use the energy molecule that's stored in the brain for energy. Uh, It's called ATP. It has several adenosines in it. And some of this adenosine is left over after you use the energy molecule. As it builds up, it makes you sleepy. Now, we're all actually familiar with this because caffeine is an antagonist to adenosine. And so when we're taking caffeine to try to be more awake, we're actually trying to block this sleepiness that comes from the built-up molecules of adenosine that are part of the process of using energy. Um, In slow-wave sleep, if I deprive you of sleep and then I measure the night when I let you recover, you'll have more slow-wave sleep. Now, I do worry a little bit about people with their Fitbits and their electronics. (laughs) You think? (laughs) You think? I worry about you, Colin. I worry a little because people can get fixated on that. I only had 20% of such and such. What's wrong with me? 
and and you can overthink it where it becomes an impediment to sleeping. Um, but the idea behind it is something reasonable. You need all the kinds of sleep. If you try to deprive somebody of slow wave sleep, you're going to find it harder and harder because the brain is going to want to have it. If I keep waking you up when you are trying, then the next night you're going to have more. Same thing for REM sleep. If I go in and deliberately wake you up from REM sleep, then the next night you'll have more REM sleep. That can actually get out of hand in some peculiar ways. If I do that experiment where I start to wake you up from your REM sleep so you don't get to have it, and then I send you home from the laboratory that morning, well, when you have your nap in the afternoon, because I messed up your sleep so much, when you have that nap, you're going to start having dreams during naps, which are not an ordinary thing to do. So the appearance of REM sleep is a need the body has. It cycles between regular sleep, REM sleep, regular sleep, REM sleep during the night. Hmm. And left to its own devices, if you get the bad habits out of the way, the bad schedules out of the way, effects of medication, effects of illness, if you get us back to the way we're meant to be, the body on the whole will regulate the changing from one kind of sleep to another pretty well. All right, so when we get towards the end of this, uh, we'll talk about maybe what you can and can't do about all this. Although I just do, as we head into a break here, I also just want to say that um, what you were talking about with uh, ADP, adenosine triphosphate, is something that I became aware of uh, listening to Michael Pollan's book about caffeine, where basically it's like we're using a charge card when we drink coffee and we're borrowing. We're borrowing from our sleep uh, and, and we never pay that bill back, really. And not only that, but our caffeine withdrawal cycle wakes us up in the morning because we want the caffeine. So uh, as, as I think he says, um, it, it's most of the caffeine consumed today is being used to compensate for the lousy sleep for which caffeine bears responsibility. Uh, but that's just Michael Pollan. We got Maria Konnikova here. Who needs Michael <laughs> Pollan? So Michael Pollan's basically a poor man's Maria Konnikova. Uh, all right, so um, let's take a little break here. We'll come back with Maria and Dan and uh, more about sleep, particularly about that school thing. All right, we're back. We're back and we're talking about sleep and we're lucky enough to be doing that with Maria Konnikova, journalist, a regular guest on this show, not regular enough uh, to make me happy, a professional poker player, not conducive to sleep, I, I would think anyway, uh, and the author of two books, The Confidence Game, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, got a new book, The Biggest Bluff, being published in June. Dr. Dan McNally is with the Sleep Disorders Center at UConn Health. We're going to begin with something that uh, both of you alluded to uh, beforehand. But uh, Maria, I'll have you get things rolling here. Um, one of the things that would just seem to make sense would be for school, for some of the reasons to which you alluded earlier, to start at, say, 830. But somehow that doesn't seem to be happening. Maybe you could say a little bit more about children, adolescents, and waking up too early. Absolutely. And I would even say that 830 is probably too early. Um, so, 
we two things happen to our bodies as we age. One, the amount of sleep we need changes. And two, our natural circadian rhythm actually changes as well. So people, it is true that people have kind of a rhythm that tends to accompany them throughout life. You know, you can be an early bird, you can be a night owl. Um, so, So yes, there are kind of these predispositions, genetic predispositions that we have. However, it's also age related. And teens um, tend to be night owls. So their circadian rhythms are actually later. So when you wake a teen up to go to bed at, say, six in the morning, it's the equivalent of waking you, uh, an adult, up at, you know, three in the three at night in the middle of the night, um, just because their circadian rhythms are so incredibly different. And what's more, they need nine and a half hours of sleep. Do you know a single teenager who goes to bed at, say, 9 p.m. in order to facilitate that? I certainly don't. And it's not just because it's not their fault. It's not like they're saying, oh, you know, I want to mess around. They have homework. They have so many activities. There are lots of stresses um, in the school that make them you know, unable actually to go to bed when they need to in order to wake up when they need to. And this has been happening for a really long time. We've had progressively earlier school start times since the 60s. I don't think it needs to be the case, but for some reason, you know, in the U.S. especially, this has really been a trend and it's affecting children from, you know, the youngest to through teenagers, through college kids. Um, and one of the things that we... I don't think we appreciate is how much those disruptions mean to a developing young brain. So some of the things that, you know, if you're an adult, you know, you can catch up, it's not a big deal. When it's a child, we don't know how permanent some of the negative effects of those disruptions might be because the brain is much more vulnerable. The brain is just so much more influenced by these sorts of conditions. And we see it in, I think, a lot of ways. Um, So there are some sleep researchers who work with children like Judith Owens at Boston Children's Hospital. And she thinks that a lot of ADHD diagnoses are actually misdiagnoses um, of sleep deprived children. And that when we're seeing things like the rise in ADHD, what we're really seeing is a rise in sleep deprivation because that affects emotional regulation, it affects self-control, and it makes kids actually hyperactive um, as opposed to sleepy. So, um, Dan McNally, obviously, uh, we know things about academic performance, and you were talking about reaction time earlier, so uh, a new younger driver driving a car may have depressed reactions uh, to important stimuli in the road. But this is, it's bigger than that, right? I mean, there's just all kinds of very serious implications about these adolescents not getting enough sleep. Give us a little sketch of that. Yeah, I mean, if you look at some of the districts that have made this change to give the kids more sleep, they've seen attendance improve, especially in the kids who had more academic issues to start with. Some of the studies have shown improvements in some of the performance measures, some of the standardized testing. And I think one of the scariest parts of all of it is, and and as, as Maria mentioned, the, the teenage mind is not finished. It's still getting itself wired up and set to go. And the ability to control impulses and other things is not quite as good as it is in somebody older. And the result is that things where there are added emotional stress, more suicidal thoughts from poor sleep, 
etc., they take a terrible toll on these kids. Uh, one of the, the things I've shown my fellows when we talk about drowsy driving, it's one of the topics we bring up in their training, we um, show them a slide of accidents and when they happen, graded by age. Well, there is a little peak. It's not enormous, but there's a little peak of automobile accidents around 7 a.m. in teenagers. I think that is in large part a result of the um, school start time being so early and the amount of sleep they get being so low compared to what they need. Um, and I've been to a number of school districts trying to promote this and speaking when I've been asked about why it's a good idea, but there's an awful lot of resistance to it. And at the base of it is that we just don't think it's a serious issue. We don't value sleep the way we ought to value sleep. I don't know if you found this, but just what I've seen anecdotally and what I've also seen reading quite a bit of journalism about this is that among the biggest resistance uh, groups to that to that idea are uh, student athletes and the parents of student athletes and coaches that there's this whole idea that uh, that athletes will be at a disadvantage if they get out of school at three o'clock uh, in a way the best thing that could happen I'm going to opine on my own show here but the best thing that could happen would be for you know 10 high school sports programs around the country to practice better sleeping habits and in fact end the school day uh, first of all begin the school day later end the school day later and then go 24 at zero, you know, and make a big deal about it that, you know, we, we went undefeated this year. We had this incredible winning season because we got enough sleep because we were trying to make some impossible start time. But I don't know if you've heard this when you speak yeah. uh, uh, or Maria, sounds like yeah, you're piping up the, here. Yeah, both of you, either, either of you. Dan, you go first. Well, one of the school districts uh, out of state that attempted this uh, about more than 10 years ago um, the superintendent came and spoke, and he quoted one of his coaches who had opposed the school start time issue initially. And after they implemented it, his reaction was, you know, I, I have 45 minutes less time to work with them in the afternoon than I did, but I get more out of them now during their practices than I did before. And I think what's true in sports is also true in academics. Oh, sure. So, Maria, I have to ask you, I mean, here we are having this conversation uh, about sleep, but your biography does include professional <laughs> poker player. Could you kind of help me resolve those two polarities a little bit? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was actually one of the most difficult things for me as I entered that world, um, that you have to be functional and be awake and be making incredibly complex decisions at one in the morning, at two in the morning. Um, and it's really bad. And, you know, we've actually, I've had this conversation with a lot of other poker players who, who say that you should really consider treating, having kind of a union that limits hours. Because if you're a tournament player, you have to play these 13, 14 hour days and performance declines. And you're not able to make decisions that are you know, as good the, the later it gets. And people who are younger are better able to function you know, later at night. Um, so then you end up getting an age advantage and you end up getting all sorts of skewed things just because people are sleep deprived. Um, so I, I do think it's, it's a major issue. Um, and it's one of the things that I actually like the least about the poker lifestyle because it's not healthy. Um, and I actually ended up having some health issues. Um, I get migraines. I've had them my entire life. Um, but 
I've um, had exacerbated migraine problems ever since I started playing poker because of the sleep disruption. Oh. And that's really, that's really problematic. And I think that a lot of people just undervalue exactly how much sleep they need and how important it is to sleep enough. You know, one of the things that people find that sleep researchers find over and over and over is that we're very bad at gauging how much sleep we actually need. So if you ask someone, you know, oh, well, how much sleep do you need? They'll probably say, oh, you know, I'm totally fine at, with six hours or seven hours or whatever. And then if you just let them sleep, they just, they perpetually underestimate that amount. And then in some studies, you find that you put them in a sleep lab, you give them the opportunity to sleep, and they'll sleep 12 hours in the first night, which means that they were in phenomenally sleep deprived. And they didn't realize that at all. And we also don't know how poorly we're functioning. So it seems like in the first 24 hours or so, when we get when we're tired, we understand that we're tired and that we're not thinking as clearly. After that, we actually lose the ability to self-analyze and we think that we're operating at full capacity, even though we're not. So I think that those two things are quite troubling because we're very poor judges of our own sleep deprivation, and we're poor judges of what we actually need to function. You know, uh, Dr. Dan McNally, we just have a few minutes left in this segment, but I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't give people uh, a little bit more advice than we've given them so far. Obviously, cafe caffeine, blue light, uh, all those kinds of things, alcohol, those are n not good things. But what are good things? If you were to give people kind of a, a recipe or a prescription to be better sleepers, what would you prescribe? Yeah, I think my top of my list is going to be having a consistent schedule, as Maria mentioned. Part of the reason for that is that it's the time you get up that plays the biggest role in resetting your circadian rhythm each day. And if you get up consistently, you will have a much better chance that your internal clock is going to be synchronized with when you're trying to sleep and you're going to be more likely to be able to get to sleep at a reasonable time and to be able to get up at that time. Trying to live away from your internal clock is just terrible. Uh, when Maria was talking about poker players, I was feeling great sympathy for third shift workers, second mm. shift workers. Oh, yeah. We've got a world of people out there who are forced to work off their biologic clock, having to be awake when their brain wants to be asleep. And it takes a real toll on them. So that's the top of my list. Second, honestly, I would put down uh, alcohol, as Maria mentioned. Um, alcohol makes you sleepy when you first take it. But as the level falls in your system, it fragments your sleep more. And we're talking here modest amounts. We're not talking somebody we would mostly regard as having a, quote, problem, close quote, with alcohol. Uh, alcohol interferes with good sleep. And so many people self-medicate with it that it, it gives them a big problem. Dan, before we run out of time, I think a lot of people out there are also, they might take an ibuprofen PM, they might take a lorazepam, they might, is it, I feel like they may be getting the wrong kind of sleep with that stuff, or is it useful at all? I, I think the problem with it is that they all pay, a, you pay a price for all of those. Some of them carry over into the next day. Some of them have problems when you withdraw from them. Some of them can make you have a partial awakening where your brain, you know, you get to sleep, but then your brain awakes partially and you find yourself without realizing it downstairs eating. One of my patients describes waking up with 
um, Twinkie wrappers in bed with her, mm. you know, because she didn't realize she's getting up in the middle of the night as an effect of that medication. It was the ambient so, talking. Um, yeah. All right. Well, we may have to wrap up there. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble with Betsy Kaplan if I don't wrap up the segment uh, here. And uh, Dan McNally, I think you know how risky something like that could be for me. So uh, <laughs> thanks very much to Dr. Dan McNally with the Sleep Disorders Center at UConn Health. Maria Konnikova, who has been on our show so many times since we started and will again. We can't wait for the book, The Biggest Bluff, to <laughs> be published you. in June 2020. And I'm just going to stay up all night reading it. Oh, wait a minute. I can't do that. All right. We're going to come back with one final segment about cultures that do value sleep more than ours. All right, we're back. I just want to remind you that I'm actually sitting uh, in my new, brand new home radio studio, which I refer to as Radio Free Declan, after my dog, who really wants to be in here with me while I do the show. But uh, I'm not sure that's a great idea, at least not yet. Uh, and so, so grateful to Cat Pastor for being on the board, uh, engineering this show and making all kinds of complicated things happen. Well, Katie Tularski, uh, who is the big boss of everything, is also in there uh, making everything good. Gina Matruda and Joe Koss, uh, played a tremendous role in terms of teaching me a lot of technology really fast. Uh, yesterday was a crash course in 21st century technology. Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer, is the producer of this episode. And if I left anybody out, which I probably did, uh, well, I'll mention you on the next show, which is tomorrow's show, which is going to be about sports. Uh, and we are going to have several sports experts on to talk about the impact of coronavirus uh, on sports and also to determine whether or not there really actually is a football team in Tampa, which I personally was not aware of. But apparently Tom Brady is going there. Won't he be surprised when he gets there and there's no football team? Uh, he's going to have to explain a lot to, to Giselle at that point. All right. So we are going to talk now to Todd Pitak, a, a journalist whose work has appeared in various publications, including either Aeon or Eon. Our entire show has been a your project to figure out how to pronounce Aeon, Eon, Ion, whatever that magazine is. It's great, though. The New York Times, Politico. Uh, and um, we are going to talk a little bit about sort of uh, something he wrote for Eon, Aeon or Ion uh, uh, about sleep and about the customs in other countries. So, uh, Todd Pitak, welcome to our show. And Hi, there he is. Here. There you are, Todd. Good. I, I, I just want to, I think I've, I've gone with Eon generally. You're going with Eon? Okay. But, but I'm going to ask now. Yeah, no, we're, we're in a, a, a longitudinal study of that. We've had so many guests from that show on. We've never pronounced it uh, the same, the magazine the same way uh, twice. So uh, uh, let's talk about some places you've visited, including uh, Korea, which I think is not in the Eon piece. Uh, how do Koreans approach sleep in a way that is different from our approach? Well, um, uh, yeah, uh, I'm, Colin, I'll tell you, I... Um their attitudes are, are definitely different. And, and what happened to me that sort of put me onto the story to begin with was I went into a cafe and it looked kind of closed and there was only one other customer and she was sleeping. And so, so as not to embarrass her, which was my interpretation of the moment, I, you know, quietly put my stuff down and the sound woke her up and it turned out she wasn't in a, 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 um, another customer. She was actually working there. And so I, you know, I got my coffee and, and then she went back to her where she was, tilted back, put her head back and fell asleep again, which I thought was hilarious, frankly. 
Um, and when I mentioned it to my son, that so he's who I was visiting, um, he said, yeah, no, they, he said their attitudes here about sleep are very, very different. That, that it was, he was working in a lab. Um, and he said people went to sleep at work and in front of coworkers and there was no shame attached to it. Um, which was, and in fact, it was seen by a lot of people as evidence that they were working really hard. Um, you know, something you just never see here. Um, and then I had another incident. Well, not an incident, but I went to, I visited the public baths, Jim, Jim Jobine, and people were sleeping on the floors in public. And this turned out to be a custom that had happened over time where back in the days, when, not that long ago, where people didn't have indoor heating, they would go to the gym, gym go bang because they had uh, underfloor heating and they would sleep in public and they still do this. So I started to think about what, you know, this would just be too awkward for us, right? So, you know, and we often think about, uh, uh, you know, we think what we do is natural and normal, but in fact, it turns out, as I kind of explored in, in the piece I wrote for Eon or, or Ion, um, that, that there's a, a vast, that the many of our things are actually relatively recent and, and unique to the West. Right. And it seems to me that one of the things that your piece reflects is that here in the West, we think of sleeping as something that you do either alone or with a maximum of one other person, unless you're like Joe Namath in 1968. Um, but um, uh, in, in other places, and, and you also don't do it with other people watching or whatever, but in, in some of these other places that you visited and places that you wrote about, that notion of communal napping, communal sleeping seems much more embedded. Right. And so, so that was really actually what I saw directly in the, in the Korean context. But one of the things that was really interesting to me as I got into uh, studying the piece is that, you know, our sleep was that the communal sleep actually spoke to an earlier time of human evolution, not really that long ago, that the big changes happened when the Industrial Revolution. But prior to those times, sleep involved um, issues of security and feeling of well-being. So communal sleep promoted a feeling of safety. Um, and in fact, the last segments were really interesting. Um, but there was a time, and even among, for example, one uh, group, one Tanzanian uh, um, ethnic group called the, the Haja, still cultivate what's called light sleep. They sleep communally. But instead of looking for the deep REM sleep, they cultivate light sleep because there's always people who need to be watching out for the security of the rest of the people, right? Um, so with, you know, other concepts influenced how we thought about sleep later, um, you know, uh, including, for example, capitalism when time became money um, and sleeping too long became seen as something uh, to be ashamed of. So I think another part of this is, yeah, this notion of sleep being something to be ashamed of is that we have started to exalt uh, the low sleepers. And, uh, you know, it seems like every CEO who writes, a, you know, an Iacocca type biography uh, boasts of the fact that he or she gets three or four hours of sleep. Uh, in 2009, uh, Donald Trump was quoted in the Daily News. How can somebody that's sleeping 12 to 14 hours a day compete with someone that's sleeping three to four? That's what he said. He slept three to four hours. I, I would just quickly 
bracket that with the fact that this quote would have coincided closely with Donald Trump's fourth trip through Chapter 11 bankruptcy and Carl Icahn taking over management of his property. <laughs> so it's not necessarily the case that he's exhibiting prowess uh, at that moment. But, you know, there is, I think, Todd, I think there is this sort of idea in America, oh, successful people don't sleep that much. Definitely. I mean, but I think we've all, to, to some degree, that's the extreme, right? And it have, came up again, actually, uh, uh, Trump's sleep schedule more recently. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a sign of, uh, it's machismo, right? And, and it's, it's your high power. There's somehow you're, you're sleeping your life away. You're wasting time, right? Because it, it, and, and it's all rooted in this idea of, of productivity, that sleep is not productive. In fact, the people who study sleep, cultural anthropologists, for example, on the cultural side, did not consider sleep a worthy field of study until about 10 years ago. Anthropology were things that people did while they were awake, right, where they made their conscious choice. When you slept, it didn't count anymore. Um, but, but yes, for sure, when it comes to, you know, the, the equating virtue with uh, not sleeping. It's, and, and, on the, and the flip side also is the judgmental aspect of it, right? which is that we, for when people sleep too much, we, we attach words to make them feel ashamed. We do this with a lot of things, right? With a lot, we're judgmental about all kinds of things in society, about you know, how much you drink, how much you eat, you don't do you know, enough of this, or you do too much of that. Sleep is unique, though, in one sense. The advice, the, the direction that we're pointing people in our judgment is to the thing that the science says is bad for you, right? Do you follow? Yeah. The, in other words, it's, it, there's a when, when we may be it may be obnoxious to be judgmental about other things, but the advice is generally correct, right? That you shouldn't drink too much alcohol, you shouldn't do drugs, you shouldn't eat too much or too little. But in this case, the science is clear: you you you, you should get enough sleep. Napping is good for you, you know, um, and we shouldn't feel the shame. So, so in that sense, sleep is really our our, our um, attitudes are completely irrational. Right. I think also, you know, it's it's the embodiment of cool for a long time. Well, I mean, first of all, during the 50s and early 60s, the embodiment of cool was Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack and they would be in Vegas and they'd stay up all night partying. Right. And Frank would sing in the wee small hours of the morning. And there was this kind of idea that um, that it was cool. It was co it was not cool to be this guy who put his pajamas on at nine o'clock and was asleep by nine thirty. What was cool to, was to to be awake uh, at that time. And I'm not sure, mm -hmm. Todd, that we've ever backed away from that. I'm, Frank Sinatra is uh, dead and gone. But I think that idea of what is cool, uh, the city that never sleeps, uh, is still with us. Um. You know, it's true, but I will just say one thing. There isn't one answer for everyone in this. Mm -hmm. So people have what they call them chronotypes. And right. I'm not sure if you covered any of this in your prior segment, but some people are natural night owls. And it is uh, health-wise cooler for them just to stay up late and sleep later, right? But they tend to uh, be out of step with the world, with a world that says early to bed, early to rise, right? Uh, right, yeah. And, and you know, that's... Ex ex Go ahead. Go ahead, Colin. No, I was just going to say, accepting that there is variety at different ages, as you did talk about before, but also among people would actually just be healthier for people to stop stressing about it, right? That, that 
you know, you find what's healthy for you, what works for you. And really, especially now with telecommuting and working from home, maybe now a little more than we ever thought we'd ever want to, um, you know, that, that, that being more accepting might be, a, might be the healthiest thing of all. That's a good place to end. Uh, and thanks uh, very much to you, our guest, uh, Todd Pittock, uh, who wrote about this for what we now decided is pronounced Eon. But it's spelled it's spelled A-E-O-N. And we really we've done so many shows with people who've written stuff uh, for them. So we should pick a pronunciation and stick with it. And Todd has helped us there and in many other ways. And yeah, so maybe that's a good thing to a good way to end. One of these days, we'll have a president of the United States who will say, I want everybody to start getting more sleep. I get a lot of sleep. That's how I got to be president, because I was well-rested and clear-headed and stuff like that. That doesn't really seem to be on the menu right now. Thanks to all the people I thanked before, and we will talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>